This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. For almost three centuries, Sotheby's has been the place to discover the greatest stories of creativity. We've been the temporary custodians of some of the world's finest treasures, which you can see on display in our galleries on any given day. Welcome to Sotheby's Talks, the podcast that celebrates art, culture, and collecting. I'm Marina Ruiz Colomer, and I want to invite you inside the world of Sotheby's, a place where you can find the extraordinary, including contemporary art, old master paintings, rare books, jewelry, and memorabilia. I'm a specialist in Sotheby's contemporary department, and throughout my career, I have championed the work of female artists. In 2021, I co-organized the first cross-category sale of work by women at Sotheby's. In the last few years, we have seen the demand for work by female artists increase dramatically, but there's still work to be done. So on this podcast, we're sharing some of the conversations we've been holding with our experts, along with tastemakers, collectors, and luminaries from the world of art and culture. Human beings have been making visual depictions of human life for tens of thousands of years. Fascination with our own likeness is one of the great constants of human history, and the portrait has long been the focus of that fascination. What can portraits tell us about the world? And what can they tell us about ourselves? In today's episode, originally recorded live at Sotheby's in London, Helen and Newman, chairman of Sotheby's Europe, sat down with Barbican Art Gallery curator Eleanor Nairn and the award-winning art historian Simon Sharma for a conversation about the enduring power of the portrait. I'm Helena Newman, chairman here in Europe and uh, global head of Impressions Modern Art. And it's a real pleasure to welcome you on the subject of portraiture. And today we're going to be exploring the power of the portrait from the ancient Egyptians right through to present day AI. And we will look at why does the human likeness continue to captivate us and what in insights do portraiture really offer about our society and its evolving nature? And ultimately, how do portraits contribute to our understanding of ourselves? And I'm absolutely delighted that to join us in this conversation, we have two very, very eminent speakers. Simon Sharma, professor of art history and history at Columbia University, author of countless books, and writer and presenter of over 60 television documentaries and on art and history. Thank you, Simon, for being with us today. It's a huge pleasure to welcome you here. And Eleanor Nairn, curator at Barbican Art Gallery here in London, and where she has been absolutely masterminding exhibitions on Lee Krasner, Basquiat, Imran Karashi, and Alice Neal. So it's wonderful to have this conversation. So Simon, I'd love to start with you. 
And I think we go right back to the earliest portraits we know. Right. Um, thank you so much, Hannah. It's not quite ancient Egypt, actually. It's rather unancient Egypt. It's um, uh, Fayyum portraits, which I'm sure lots of you know, which were uh, accompanied mummied, mummified bodies uh, in the Ptolemaic period. So um, from the late first century BC, not many of those. Um, but they go into the, as late as the third century AD, and this is probably about halfway between. But what I want to say, actually, by way of a preface to this lovely occasion, is that portraiture begins with a fear of death and the worry about impermanence and immortality. I mean, you could say a lot of painting is it, actually a huge amount of figurative art, or possibly all of figurative art, is driven by the terror of the fugitive, whether it's the landscape or still life, vanish our still life or whatever. But portraiture in the Western traditions begins with these, with these images. And it raises in the age of Snapchat, where a face will disappear after 10 seconds, or Instagram or Tinder swiping, the compulsion now not to actually nail something down as permanent or even, you know, long lasting. But the 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 second issue that's about classical portraiture, which is, as we unfortunately say in academic journals, problematized, is the notion that portraiture is designed to capture the essential us, that there is something that we judge the artist to the degree to which he's not captured verisimilitude or physiognomy, but something that is the essential you, you, and you. And, you know, in the age of AI and in the age of avatars and everything else, there may be no essential us to capture anymore. So the issue is whether or not portraiture and those who persist heroically in producing portraits simply are impervious to this or don't care or hostile and whether portraiture as it continues is a kind of fight back. These were, I would have to say, what's really wonderful about them. They're startlingly naturalistic. And they were meant to give a sense. They were actually apparently laid on the mummy, where the mummy's head is, would be these boards, basically. I mean, they'd be seen as boards. So they were meant to be seen not in some sort of sempiternal way, um, but as if they'd just come into the room again. And a lot of them are children, a um, surprising number of children who die very early on. So I think that which is very, very touching, so that you'd want to have the memory of the child as you happen to see them in, in some way or another. So the psychology of portraiture, I think, is anticipated. Oh. And you talked about fear of death, and of course, yeah. self-portraiture is a huge vehicle in right. a way. And yeah, this. Think about Salvatore Rosa that I hadn't realized, you know, uh, for a long time, he just, because he was such a favorite of 18th century co English collectors, British collectors, um, but they're all kind of bandits and mountain scenery. Mm. Um, that was, they loved that. But he was also very, I mean, st extraordinarily striking sense of self-possession. Um, of course, artists actually, Dura is the case, you know, were out there rather frontally promoting themselves as artists tending to be seen as pictor doctors, learned, learned painters, not just artisanal members of a goldsmith's guild of St. Luke. So we have Dura, of course, classically, and Leonardo and Titian. Um, but they all also depended on patrons. And what's amazing about Salvatore Rosa, documented, I mean, I first learned about him from my great friend and, and colleague, Francis Haskell, 
um, who in his wonderful book on Baroque Roman painting, first drew my attention to Baldinucci and Bellori and Rosa's biographers in the middle of the 17th century, that Rosa wanted to have no truck with patrons at all. So if you ever hear art historians telling you that the self-consciousness of the painterly ego begins with the romantics, that is profoundly a mistake. It actually begins about this period. Switz is a Flemish painter, son of a merchant, lived in Brussels, goes to Rome, and he was famous for emulating Velasquez and painters who he, or other painters he met at Rome, and you instantly saying, oh, well, obviously he'd seen Vermeer. And in fact, actually, there's a connection because towards the end of Vermeer's life, Balthazar de Monsonis, famous French aristocratic collector and traveler, goes to visit Vermeer, and he has a friend with him, ah, whose name I've forgotten, who's a painter, who was actually Swiertz's neighbor in, in Rome when they lived in the Via Marguta. But it's much more likely Vermeer copied him because actually by the time Vermeer gets going in any serious way, Switz is on his way, has an extraordinary mystical Catholic conversion, and on his way to China, he causes so much trouble to the Jesuits whom he's with that they basically evict him, and he goes through this complicated line of and ends up in Goa, where he dies in very mysterious circumstances. So, I mean, his life is an extraordinarily wild romance, but... It's an astonishing painting. I mean, the Lenin brothers maybe did heads like this, and there are many of these, and there are old women too. So I suppose, actually, well, you could say it's a trony. You know, it could have been a maidservant, we don't know. So it could be a kind of genre study, in a way, in the Dutch style, or it could have been very specifically, you know, someone whose presence he wanted to register. And, you know, you don't want me to go on about paint handling, but it is very, very remarkable. And the effect of this person being in our presence depends on what the Dutch call howding, which is the relationship and modulation between shadow and highlights, which are very unorthodox, actually, in Swiss. And um, yeah, here's the wonderful Chatsworth Rembrandt. I have nothing to say about this except blimey. Um, it's a gorgeous thing. It's a gorgeous thing. I think this is not a trony, even though it's an old man. I think it's very likely to have been a, a commission, don't you? I think, really. Um, and he's wearing this kind of what looks like an archaic piece of costume, but of course Rembrandt wears it himself in, 60, in the 1658 portrait in the Frick. And the de Gere, beautiful de Gere portrait, half of the marriage portrait in the National Gallery here, also has this very wonderful old-fashioned kind of tabard, whatever you I don't know what you call it. The next picture is also a reflection. Indeed, Lucian Freud called it a reflection. And um, it is, I think, my favorite Lucian Freud of all. And I have a lot of not favorite Lucian Freuds, but, um, but this is an extraordinary picture. 93, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah. Here's the paradigm of him with his bare feet and the shoes. All this is naturalistic. Um, but here is my idea of beauty, me, in, in the mirror. It's literally a reflection. And the center of the painting, you can see where the center of the painting, the seat of genius is in a supremely Freudian place. We better go on from that. Okay. Um, when women start to do self-portraits, they can actually reclaim agency and control over what the gaze does and also what their bodies were. This is Paula Mersenbecker in 1906. She is the first person, as far as I know, 
to correct me, anybody, to do a nude self-portrait. She was incredibly, I mean, she died tragically young at 31. She was very gifted. She married uh, an artist, not so good, Otto Modersohn. She was Paula Becker um, in 1901. And she moved to, I always forget what it's called. It's a small town. It was an artist colony near Bremen. Begins with W, Wolfersand, can't quite remember. And she starts actually, but she becomes very unhappy with Otto and she goes to Paris. She makes four trips to Paris. And in Paris, she starts painting herself, as in this case, um, nude. And she's painting herself pregnant. Um, she wasn't, in fact, pregnant at the time she painted herself in this way. It's very touching. The marriage, for whatever reason, was unconsummated, we know from her letters, for five years. And during which time this was painted, uh, shortly afterwards, she does, she goes back to Otto and she does conceive. There's a daughter born and then she dies three weeks later of an embolism. It's absolutely catastrophically tragic, really. It's a terrible story. And I think actually this is sort of, it, it's very, very moving because it is almost childlike and uncertain and self-curious, really. There are two other great nude paintings, but it's a great chapter in sort of instinctive wish to produce a kind of art which takes over, really, from male obsessions. And the last picture in my list, I hope I haven't taken too long, is this masterpiece by Laura Knight in the National Portrait Gallery. Um, and this is fantastic. Laura Knight, also another case of someone married to a much less successful and gifted artist, Harold Knight. And Laura, um, her mother dies young, she's in Nottingham, and she really has to work very hard to sort of keep the family together. Eventually, she finds a way with Harold to actually be part of the famous artist colony in St. Ives in Cornwall. Is it not Cornwall or Devon Cornwall? And she starts to actually play with, again, nude figures on the beach. They're not very good, actually, I think. They're very joyous and playful and exuberant. There's one very daring nude on the beach, which we only know from a photograph because she destroys it. Then at some point in 19... 12, 13, she paints this amazing picture, which is, the model is a friend of hers called Ella Naper. And formerly, it's rather extraordinary. It always haunts me that de Stael in Holland are doing those experiments, which will eventually resolve themselves in Mondrian's art. And she is actually, this is, apart from the figures, it's actually an extraordinarily hypnotic study in the rhyming of horizontal and vertical lines and the fierceness of the red is a very important tonal part of the power of it but she again we we have it what it is is a retort to Dejeuner sur l'herbe it's a retort to Courbet's studio all those paintings where all the men get to keep their clothes on and the women are available for nude inspection and decoration and whatever kind of satisfaction just the opposite here. So it's a brilliant, it's a, such a kind of thought through piece of stupendous painterly mischief, I think. And I, I absolutely love it. Hey, thank you. Well, that was just an amazing romp through hundreds of years of portraiture. And I think I would love to move on now to the Klimt portrait. And I think it's interesting with Klimt because he's obviously incredibly well known for his commissioned portraits. And we haven't actually talked a lot about that yet, the difference between the, the self-portraits, the commissioned portraits, and the portraits with paid models or procured models. But I think with Klimt, there's a special dynamic going on because Vienna, at the beginning of the 20th century, 
didn't really have an established gallery scene. I mean, it's not like in Paris or Berlin where there was a proper modern art gallery scene. So as an artist, Klimt really needed these commissions. I mean, they were his way to promote and sell his work and actually became an incredibly well-paid, probably one of the most well-paid portrait artists of his time in the early 20th century. And of course, he's famous for the golden Bauer and the great portraits of uh, members of the Lederer family and the Wittgenstein family and Felsivani and all these great large typically vertical format obviously portrait format commissions but alongside that he painted obviously his landscapes the allegorical and then these non-commissioned portraits of models and here you see him really in his full kind of freedom of expression. He's not constrained by any demands from the patron. He is adopting this square format, which I think sort of breaks down the hierarchy of sitter and background. And that has an amazing effect here with the, with the drapery of this chinoiserie and uh, Asian style cloth that is put behind the model. And then of course, because you know, she is a model that he's taken for the purpose of his work. He has, you know, almost painted her nude. I mean, there's even a theory when you look at the drawings that prepare for this work that she started nude and then he clothed her and put the kimono on and put the fan in front of her breast. But however it's composed, it is, I think, a wonderful example of that, that beginning of the 20th century influence of secessionism merged with, of course, the obsession with Japanese and, 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 and Chinese culture at the time, which was so prevalent in Vienna. And also, I think what's very interesting about this is it sets the scene of what is to come in the 20th century, because that strong portraiture in Vienna, which then leads to artists like Schiele and Kokoschka, um, who in turn are drawing on that tradition of uh, the other Freud and psychoanalysis kind of sets the scene for 20th century portraiture and that study of the, you know, the, the, the inner world of the artist and the inner world of their subjects, which becomes so expressive and so important all the way through. Now, very different, incredibly powerful self-portrait by the uh, artists associated with the surrealist movement, Leonor Fini, but I think looking out with this incredible boldness, and she's chosen panel to paint it on, which I think is very much a kind of looking back at the old masters and the, and do you think that sort of sense of the, the you know the the northern European tradition of the dramatic light, very powerful, very much you know this is me and I will paint in my way and show myself. What did but you think, the, well, Eleanor? The angle of her gaze as well. You know, that angle of the look completely goes back to the history of mirrors coming in in the kind of 15th century in Europe. And I think here she's, she's making that link in art history. She's saying, you know, yeah. I'm as artists and I'm as good as the men and I have that come from that tradition. And she's very, she's very um, bold and outward, outward going. In fact, most of her work is not self-portraiture. It's quite a rare self-portrait. Mostly she's doing quite allegorical subjects and very, you know, surreal compositions. But also I think it's, sometimes it's tempting for us to look at a work like this and to say this is a woman wanting to establish herself in the canon. Often it's just an artist wanting to establish themselves as an artist. You know, it has never been easy to be an artist in almost all sets of circumstances, especially once patronage gave way and you were making portraits without any sense of who you might sell them to. And so I think often when you have that intensity of look, it's a person saying, 
will I make it? You know, and will the work make it? And will I make it? And what is the relationship between the two? Yes, no, I totally agree. But I think it's inevitable that we look at it through our eyes now. But then when you read about what was going, you know, the whole sort of surrealist movement and that interaction with Breton, Max Ernst and everything, it was a very male dominated world, even though there were all the women interweaving with their complex relationships around it. So, but I know I agree, Ellen. It's a, we, we, we can only bring our perspective as ever. But the next one, is is the Freud. Actually, I really think you have to look at up close to appreciate his full complexity. And when we talk about portraiture, you know, there's what you see in the painting, the actual figure, but there is the artist. I think what's powerful about this is the artist is present without painting himself. So if you think of, you know, Freud, his two giant subjects are the self-portraits and the news. But here, although he's not in there, he seems to be present in every bit of the, every bit of the composition, the sort of open door to the wardrobe with his coat hanging there, the reflection in the window that just seems to nod at the easel. And actually the figure of the nude is, is small in a composition when it's set, which itself is very compact for Freud. So it's a very interesting use, I think, of space and the model and the artist's presence in a beautiful nighttime interior. And then we have the Savile, which um, is a real, a real coup. And you go from the small, finny self-portrait to this absolutely monumental, incredibly expressive oil on paper. I mean, an absolute giant, giant of a painting. And a not necessarily in a known sitter, but even as an unknown sitter, I think Jenny brings a lot of herself in it as well. So it has that sort of sense of aspects of self-portraiture and, you know, bringing in images from photographs and collected images. But it is the surface of this work, which is spectacular. I mean, it's almost as if she's started with the texture and then literally molded the face and the features from the paint. It's so thick, the oil, it's almost like it's the flesh is being created through the paint. And that, you know, with Jenny, when you hear her speaking, she's much more articulate talking about her work than I am. But she talks a lot about her, her experiences of actually going to see, you know, plastic surgery and see the dissections and, and, and flesh being worked. And that is really what you sense in front of that. It's incredibly powerful and expressive and, and as I say, monumental. Well, also given the last hundred years of painting have been largely bifurcated between figuration and abstraction, often falsely, it allows her to do both, to exist in both. You know, you look at it up close and it has these great painterly swathes to it, but also kind of resolves into this extraordinary image. And given that we live in a landscape in which women are regularly pasted onto billboards the size of buildings, you know. It has a relationship to the idea of what a face can be and can sell in today's culture as well. Mm. I think two, two things, I think she is an extraordinary handler of materials, really. I mean, she takes the kind of texture of what you can do and, and what resists in paint very, very seriously. She's extremely old-fashioned in the best possible way, in that way. And then again, I think, you know, be, you couldn't possibly see a painting like this and not realize that she's interested in damage. Um, check out some of the other 
pieces that Jenny did. She's interested in, in the instability of faces when they both, you know, um, as Anna says, sort of surgical differences, all kinds of mutilations, changes, and morphing processes um, fascinate her. Wonderfully, I think, I mean, her genius is really to make a, a marriage of beauty and violence that actually works. And so she has done something within the paradigms, actually, of, in a, in a way, I won't say traditional painting, but using the, the traditional materiality and tools of representational land that is nonetheless thematically genuinely revolutionary, I think. And it's very... I find that incredibly heartening because when you, you what you don't want to do, I think I think we'll probably hesitate. I don't want to speak for you two, but um, what you don't want to do is to divide wonderfully spirited and accomplished and dynamically fresh art into the old stuff and the new stuff. And Jenny is a kind of supreme example. There are others I could mention of resisting that foolish polarization yeah it's spectacular but Eleanor let's turn to you and what you have chosen to focus on I have a small number a small (laughs) small choice selection of things that I thought would be interesting to kind of throw into the mix one is this extraordinary Degas and for those of you who don't know it this is a painting that Degas made of Manet and his wife which so enraged Manet that he cut his wife out of the picture and so they include it in the exhibition as this kind of um, extraordinary testament, use the word document, it is a kind of fascinating historical document to this controversial, difficult, testy friendship that existed between these two artists. Even to use the word friendship is maybe a little bit of a reach. But I wanted to include it because I think it's very easy for us to look at portraiture now and see it as rather traditional, sometimes quite polite genre of painting. and to forget the kind of fierce provocation that it might lay down. And of course, in this instance, it's probably provoked, could be provoked by there being a sense of who were the women who were in paintings during this period. You know, they were often people who were sex workers as well, you know, or or they might have been immediate family members, but there was a kind of thrill of intimacy. Perhaps he felt what right has he to paint my wife? You know, the person who paints my wife is me. You know, um, there's so much in that dynamic that we don't we don't know and can't understand, couldn't possibly know. But I, I kind of love it as a as a testament to what portraiture can can set off within us. Um, and then something much more recent, the Alice Neal show that I did at the Barbican. This was the work that we actually opened with. I think as a curator, you always have to know where are you going to begin the story? And the answer should almost certainly not be with the student work. <laughs> There's a question about, you know, you need to open in media res and, and what's, what's the kind of captivating beginning? And for me, I knew I wanted to start with this because it's a, it's a pretty unprecedented image. It took five years. She wasn't working consistently on it for five years. She was encouraged to begin it when she was 75 years old in 1975, and she found it fantastically difficult. She dedicated a whole career to making what she called pictures of people. She detested the word portrait in the same way that she thought it was fussy, you know. Um, but she, she finally kind of settles on this, on this work. 
there's so many things you could say about it, but, but one of them is that it is wonderfully unapologetic in, in her depiction of her aging body and also that she leaves her glasses on. So we have a number of great paintings, self-portraits of artists wearing glasses. And it was, I think, a way, has been, continues to be a way for artists to encircle their sight, you know, both literally the main central tool of their trade, but also their, their insight, their capacity, their perspicacity, their, their ability to um, see things as they really are. And, you know, Simon started by talking about, you know, what does portraiture mean in an age of technology? Certainly verisimilitude doesn't really have a place, hasn't had a place arguably for 150 years or more. One of the things I found myself saying when I was able to live amongst Alice Neal's work for this short sort of three months period was that you won't like every painting, but the ones that capture you are because she understood the right degree of wrong. <laughs> you know, she was kind of wonky in the best of ways. And sometimes they kind of kilt her off stage. <laughs> and sometimes they just kind of hold their own. And, and when you have the pleasure of meeting either the people who sat for them or some of the relatives of the people who sat for them, you really see how she managed to, um, to capture very vividly something that's, that's not easy to set down in paint. So that was why we kind of had to, had to open the show with this one. The second of hers that I wanted to include uh, is this painting of John Perrault, which the team thought was particularly funny because he was a curator. He was doing a show about the male nude. He was a, curator, a critic and a curator at the School of Visual Arts in New York. And he wanted to borrow a very radical painting that she made um, that some of you will have seen of Joe Gould, who has kind of multiple sets of genitalia that she made in the 1930s, which was you know, truly a brazen image. And she said, oh, well, you know, surely, surely other artists are allowed to include new work. And he said, well, yes, some people are making new painting. And she said, right, there it is. I shall paint you then. Because how could you possibly go about curating a show of the male nude without being a male nude yourself? Chantelle Joffe, the artist, had a great line in which she said, he looks like nothing so much as a big ginger Tom. And I think it's really a good line. You know, she was, um, she was very good at capturing the kind of animalistic qualities within each of us. Um, the question of portraiture, which if the Freud sets you off, this is really gonna set you off. How do we determine what constitutes a portrait? Um, so this is a painting made by Sahela Sokhambari. Um, she made a suite of new paintings, all of feminist icons from pre-revolutionary Iran. So this is Farouk Farakzad, who was for those of you who don't know, that you know, one of the great modernist poets in, in pre-revolutionary Iran, she wrote an incredible collection of poems called um, Sin, for which she was uh, subjected to electroshock treatments. They were in part about her having an adulterous affair. She had her child taken away from her. You know, she has a truly, truly terrible experience. And Sahela wanted to make these images. They're all black and white, but with tiny colored details because she's drawing from promotional materials. You know, of course, these women couldn't come and sit for her. Most of them are no longer alive. Those who are alive are living largely in exile in Europe and, and America. But she wanted to make both portraits of these individual women. So each one of these rosettes has, so the whole curve was painted in these Islamic geometric patterns. And each one of the rosettes has one of the portraits in the middle. So it was a pantheon basically dedicated to these women 
And so she both wanted to create a testament to their individual stories. And they're made in egg tempera, I mean, speak about reclaiming ancient techniques. So she's making them in a way whereby in a thousand years that painting will still exist. So if you're concerned about the censorship of these women's histories, here is a way to say, I will tell this story and I will ensure that it survives. But it's also a way of her telling her own story. It is in many respects, the whole kind of installation, a self-portrait, because here is somebody who came to the UK when she was 14, fleeing from the revolution, who hasn't been able to go back for at least 20 years, who's trying to understand how did, it, how did we get to be here? How did I literally get to be here? Um, and so I think it's interesting when you see these projects which kind of open up an expanded notion of what might constitute a portrait or a self-portrait. Mm, incredible. I mean, that's a wonderful way to try to wrap up a very, um, you know, far-reaching conversation because I think that it also brings the whole question of what will happen now, really, and what, how it will be with portraiture in the future, given the combination of imagery that we now, you know, all living with. You know, people are endlessly tempted to say painting is dead. You know, the same thing might be said uh, for portraiture, and yet there is this real resistance to that. I think because people live in a very busy, demanding, highly technologized age in which something about not just painting, you know, these are, these are paintings made from life and in the wake specifically of what lots of us experienced during the pandemic of being very atomized and experiencing one another through screens. I think people have only come to crave painted portraits even more. Yeah, I, I, I think there are, no, that's true. I, th I think the whole sense of the instability of the self, I mean, there are, there's a huge paradox, which uh, may or may not be good, actually. I mean, I see this in my students. Um, on the one hand, this identity has become very unstable, particularly in an age of migration, really cultural migration, which can produce extraordinarily beautiful hybrid kind of sense of identities that are brought together and disappear. That sort of sense of migratory instability, you know, it has the potential for enormous creative power, actually, creative inventiveness. My basic sense of actually portraiture being constantly re-examining why it happens, why it should be tackled. Jenny Savile's a wonderful example of that. Alice Neal's an incredibly brilliant masterpiece set, I think, actually, of her. It's a good thing, but I, I, it, it will evolve in lots of different ways, I think, that we don't yet quite anticipate. Well, thank you. Look, I'd like, first of all, to thank our speakers, Simon and Eleanor, for sharing your kind of wonderfully idiosyncratic and choices. Um, it's really just to provoke the conversation and it's, I think, an enduring one that will be forever part of our human identity. And wherever there will be art, there will be portraits. So I think we can wrap up. And thank you again, Simon Sharma. Thank you very much, Ellen and Anne. And thank you for being with us. This was Sotheby's Talk Season 1. Thank you for joining us. To step further into the world of Sotheby's, you can visit any of our galleries around the world. They're open to the public. For more information, visit sotheby's.com.
And don't forget to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season one, which features conversations with guests, including Marina Bramovic, Mary McCartney, Tracy Emin, Paloma Picasso, and Julianne Moore, is now live. <laughs>